Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 5, October Half-Term Special 2023. You've made it. It's half term. Well done. (laughs) It's a long one, isn't it? That first term. It really is. And um, hopefully you're now at Friday and feeling the benefits of having had the best part of a half term holiday if you're listening from the UK. We're coming at you with our usual half term offer of three things we have cobbled together. Should we... Be honest, Tom, about when we are recording this. <laughs> yes. yes, we have previously mentioned that we like to line a few up to get us through the madness of PGC induction. And we're taking our forethought to ridiculous degrees here because it's actually the middle of August as we record this. Aren't we impressive? Well, I do feel that we ought to be honest because I feel that maybe one of mine, at least, one of my contributions is sort of taking place in a moment at a moment in time although I'm saying that quite lightly it doesn't really matter too it's much. It's going to age well is it? Well no it's just maybe going to be slightly old news but mm, we'll see we'll, we'll go with it anyway. Um, I think I'm on first aren't I? Yes three things each no real idea what anybody's bringing just so we can we can hit you with things and a, and a slight sort of ongoing promise from me not to hit you with anything too awful although I'm not sure whether I've entirely kept my promise this time but we'll oh, see oh good job it's the summer when we're recording this then and my brain can take it it's not christmas and dark and i'm really tired and grumpy okay well i'll go first then so my first contribution is from the british educational research association's blog the beer blog and just as a, a side point about the beer blog i'm sure we've we've included content from there before but generally tends to be sort of more accessible short sort of 500 word summaries of larger research papers which are usually accessible I don't know whether it's a rule that they have to be open access but certainly I've never found one where the associated article isn't open access and for this one it is so this blog is called Being Well and Doing Well, Exploring the Relationship Between Student and Teacher Wellbeing. And this was written by Rosanna Wilson, doctoral researcher in education at the University of Nottingham. Um, And this was actually published on the Beera blog on the 17th of July of this year. So here goes with the blog. There is a tendency to see teacher well-being and student well-being as competing concerns in school leadership and culture. What teacher well-being and student well-being have in common is the perception by teachers that they are an add-on to the principal agenda of academic performance. Initiatives tackling teacher well-being are often experienced as piecemeal and are inconsistent with the overall culture of teachers' professional expectations in schools. For example, a short mindfulness course offered alongside a general CPD focus on teaching for performance. Our research with teachers, and this is nodding to the larger research paper, which involved um, 20 participants from English schools, secondary in particular, 
Our research with teachers has found that teachers subsequently experience a sense of incoherence and confusion around how well-being fits in as a priority in their work. We found tensions in teachers' understandings of the aim of teaching as doing well at the expense of being well, despite their conviction that to authentically do well, students and teachers need to be well as a foundation. While education for well-being is often portrayed as learning a set of knowledge and skills to be obtained by individuals to support their resilience, our study with teachers matched other findings which highlight the relational nature of well-being in teachers' understanding and practice. Here, the notion of teaching as care work comes to the fore. The caring role in teaching is theorised by noddings as a web of care, in which care is understood to be dialogic, requiring a response from a student or cared for, which buffers the teacher's own well-being. Care is also multidirectional. Education staff give and receive care from each other. This perspective is in tension with CPD and secondary teacher training, which almost exclusively foregrounds the role of teachers in academic performance and I'm going to make the caveat there that it refers to teacher training this is coming from an English context we refer to it as teacher education for very good reasons so the article the blog goes on our findings suggest that the emphasis on well-being as a set of skills and knowledge veils the reality that well-being in the classroom and school community is experienced by teachers as rooted in the quality of relationships between students and teachers and among among teachers our participants conceptualise their own well-being as resting on having space for authenticity, purpose and relationships, particularly the quality of relationships with students that means teachers can help support students into areas in which they can individually flourish. This is something which helps students feel valued and contributes something meaningful to the wider community. Our research also implied that what seems an obvious conclusion perhaps masked by the reality in schools, teachers who have good relationships with their students and who are allowed the autonomy to craft learning opportunities according to their specific needs and strengths experience a greater sense of well-being in their work and life. This suggests a positive feedback loop between teacher work on student well-being and teacher well-being. If the relational nature of well-being in schools is acknowledged alongside the importance for teacher well-being of teachers seeing their students develop their own specific strengths, two principal conclusions for school practice and policy can be drawn. First, that teachers and students need time and space to grow relationships. Second, that the culture and expectations surrounding the curriculum need to allow for this space for relationality and care. This is illustrated by teachers' expressions of frustrations with dense curricula tied close so closely to high-stakes exam outcomes. We suggest that recentering the pastoral role of teachers and the value of their relationships with students may be as important an answer to teacher well-being, retention and recruitment as workload and pay. Responses could entail allocating time in CPD provision to teacher dialogue and professional development around culture for well-being in school. So that's it really. I liked this. I, I mean, maybe anyone listening to this who is a teacher will go, well, that's abundantly obvious. But, you know, how many CPD sessions have you been to which sort of give you something to help, well, supposedly help work, you work on your well-being, which is so untethered from and seemingly detached from your working life and the reality of, of what has a 
big impact on your well-being, which is, you know, what's going on in the classroom with your pupils. It got me thinking about our student teachers at this time of year and a particular hurdle that they face when they're starting in a new placement school, whether they're on the BA or the PGCE, which is getting to know and build relationships with the pupils. And the fact that this paper, albeit a small scale study with only 20 participants in the secondary context in England, did find that there is that sort of relational aspect to well-being and how we really are dependent on one another and also the relationships that we forge with our pupils. Yeah, I mean, this is such a massive one, isn't it? It's almost kind of hard to know where to where to jump in on this. But the things that kind of immediately came to my mind is that obviously we work with student teachers who are very, very new to teaching and still trying to work out where the lines are drawn and how to look after themselves and not burn themselves out and, you know, not get themselves in a terrible state. I know that in, in previous iterations of our university curriculum, we've had some of that quite well-meaning but ultimately not enormously useful stuff around personal well-being which for some of the student teachers has kind of come across as a little bit patronizing and also they've kind of made the point of well actually my well-being would be better if you just give me this time back so I can tackle my enormous workload I think we've all had those sorts of sessions haven't we as teachers where it's it's very well-meaning but it's time that you don't really feel you can afford it's also interesting isn't it that pretty much everybody who comes into teaching and sticks at it comes into it because they like working with young people they find it energizing and they find it interesting and and they find it fun and this kind of squeezing out of the, the those sort of little moments is a real problem for your job satisfaction. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. It actually, this study goes on, if you look at the, the, the broader study, to highlight the importance of making space for getting outside the classroom with your students, not just outdoor learning. But, you know, it got me thinking about how I've really come to build a more full understanding of my pupils when I take them on a theatre trip or when we're in extracurricular contexts because they see a side of you, you see a side of them that is just a very different relationship to to what you're what you're having to sort of manage in the classroom context. Yeah, I've always felt we're quite lucky as arts people that we do have all those extracurricular activities where you do, as you say, you get to know a different side of the pupils. I mean, it's a difficult line if you're new to teaching because... It's very, very important not to think that you're just going to be friends with the kids. I mean, that that way lies, you know, very bad things. And I think also you sometimes find that people, some people come into the younger age group of teaching thinking they're just going to be kind of playing and having fun and all of that kind of thing. And it's interesting that there is a kind of slightly business-like side to it, that you are there to learn and you, you kind of need to have that sort of slightly business-like relationship. But if you take it too far, it does become very dry dry and and very miserable and if you're not a a, a subject specialist that lends itself to lots and lots of extracurricular work you do still have that kind of form time that break duty time you know even that kind of having a chat as they're they're going out of school kind of time Mm. it's one to kind of not lose sight of I think I think so and it it, it sort of resonated if if anybody out there listened to um, our episode with Dr Elizabeth McGregor about musical vulnerabilities but you know, how so much of what we do in the classroom is built upon our understanding, a really full understanding of 
the young people that we're working with and how things that we say, things that we do can have big ripple effects on young people's lives. And just hearing this article talk about teachers feeling well when they feel that they're able to sort of open doors for their young people, to help them find their purpose, their place. That doesn't happen if you're rigidly sticking to a curriculum. I think you've got to create space for that within your practice in the classroom too. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was an interesting one to start with. Very academic. None of mine are academic mm. today, I'm afraid. I'm providing my usual kind of counterpoint with some some interesting stuff. I'm going to give honourable mentions to two items that didn't quite find their way into this episode. One is a blog post, at least one blog post, possibly a series of them, by Professor Martin Fortley over at BCU. This is the closest thing I'm getting to something academic, (laughs) in which he's uh, written some really interesting stuff about some of the sort of harumphing expectations of the classical music world, that uh, classroom music education is there to basically prop up a slightly uh, moribund classical music music business. That was interesting. Well worth a read. And I also rather enjoyed an article in the New York, New York Intelligencer about Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, Ooh. which was uh, simultaneously funny and incredibly bleak. Uh, but <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> but uh, I, th- I thought I'd done slightly too many of the whole social media is going to bring about the end of the world type stuff in the last few. So I've left that one out. But if, if you want to go and find that one, Martin Fortley's blog, you can you can find by Googling. And then who is still inside the metaverse searching for friends in Mark Zuckerberg's deserted fantasy land <laughs> is <laughs> a very oh, long I'm gutted. <laughs> but really quite bleak article in the New York Intelligencer. But instead of those, I've got three, three slightly different ones. Um, the first one I've got for you, it's a sort of mashup of two articles that I read uh, in recent months in the Times newspaper, the Times of London, as it's known outside of these shores. The first little bit I'm going to give you is a column by uh, someone I brought to the show before, James Marriott, whose columns I always enjoy very much. And in this column, which I'm going to read a tiny bit from, he's advancing the argument that perhaps all the kind of angry social justice pulling down statues stuff of the last few years is starting to die really and is being replaced by a kind of resignation <laughs> of, uh, of those people are growing up and going into into careers and it's all died off a little bit so he says um securing his niche in the facade of the museum of the home the merchant and slave trader sir robert jeffrey watches over a stretch of my commute from outer hackney to the offices of the times there was a period a couple of years ago when it seemed inevitable that jeffrey must fall but he remains like his fellow colonial wrongdoer sir cecil rhodes who still guards the portals of oriel college he's been reprieved and his and is beginning to be forgotten A new law forbids the removal of historic statues. The iconoclastic fervour that gripped the public is subsiding. Sir Robert's expression of bored cynicism suggests he always expects this. He always suspected this would be the case. The storms of revolution blow themselves out. He's once again an unregarded detail on an old building. This summer marks three years since the statue of Edward Colston was torn from its pedestal and dragged into Bristol Harbour. Three years? Three years, yeah. yeah. Time is ticking away. Three years since Edward Colston was torn down. If it's not too grand to apply the term age to the very recent past, I think we will look back on that moment as the apogee of an age of outrage which lasted from the mid-2010s to the early 2020s. 
It wasn't exactly 1848, but for a few years there was a giddy sense that mass movements and even politicians might change history. Some imagined Brexit could overthrow Britain's smug elite. The disenfranchised metropolitan young dreamt that Jeremy Corbyn might repair the broken social contract that had condemned them to insecurity, debt and slum standard accommodation. But for many, especially the immiserated graduate class whose resentments propelled so many of the cultural upheavals of the 2010s, shock at injustice is turning to resignation. Campuses are quieter. Speaking to students recently, I got the impression of a cohort more focused on internships than of changing the world. And so he goes on to kind of suggest that perhaps, you know, the age of tearing statues down is over. A couple of months later, uh, no, in fact, a couple of months earlier, there'd been a, a really interesting article about a statue in Vienna which perhaps proposes a slightly different approach to how to deal with statues of people who have done terrible things in history. So I'll, I'll just tell you what they did in Vienna with the statue of Karl Luger, the early 20th century mayor who did as much as anyone to shape the modern city, but was also a prominent anti-Semite and an inspiration to Adolf Hitler. Although his name has long been erased from the street next to the University of Vienna, the triumphal bronze statue he commissioned to trumpet his own cult of personality still stands in Dr. Karl Lugerplatz, the square next to the capital's Arts and Crafts Museum. Over the years, it's been denounced by Holocaust survivors, obscured with a giant picture of a pro-refugee activist, flanked by wooden cutouts of other Viennese monuments, and repeatedly daubed with paint and graffiti. So you get the impression that there's quite a lot of people in Vienna that are not fans of Dr. Karl Luger and his statue. So, a jury appointed by the city council has at last settled on a solution intended to tread a fine line between recognising Luger's civic achievements and condemning his racist discourse. The statue will be tilted three and a half degrees to the right. The four and a half metre high statue and its plinth will be left intact. The only change will be a layer of concrete added to one side of its foundations. The jury described the concept as a disturbance in public space. The artistic approach raises questions and keeps them open. Through the slant, the statue's claim to monumental status is broken. The visual message is apparent even within, without any prior information. So apparently this was proposed by an art student called Clemens Villidal, who hopes that it will give the viewer a nagging sense of disorientation, because apparently three and a half degrees is the angle of inclination believed to be the point at which the human eye begins to notice that something is wrong. The decision to tilt the statue was praised by Depressa, a Vienna newspaper, which said it almost brought tears of emotion to the long desiccated eyes of culture policy observers. Critics argue it continues to honour Luger and ignores the perspective of the vid victims of anti-Semitism. So the idea apparently is that this statue will be leaning over to the right just enough for you to get the idea that something's not quite right. And then when you approach it to find out what's wrong, there will be a kind of plaque or, or a thing down there by the plinth of the statue explaining why they have done what they did. Okay, I wasn't convinced. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't convinced until the end of that explanation and the fact that it draws you in and then you get the information. I think that's, that's where I stand on this. I'm not saying that I wasn't in full support of um and maybe I shouldn't come out I should be more neutral on our podcast but I'm not going to be I was in full support of people pulling down the statue of Edward Colston however you do wonder if it sort of then prevents the conversation around those works I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on the podcast in the past and my position was the same then and I feel the same about 
certain films. I think Gone with the Wind was one that came up in the past that they were showing on TCM that they sort of did in a series, but they did a load of documentary style critique before and after to point to the issues. And I think that that's where I stand. I think I'm I'm not sure about dragging them down. I'm not sure about erasing history. I I am convinced about learning from the past and understanding why there is controversy around their, you know, sort of enduring status among us in cities and public places. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because once you get rid of something, you, you haven't got a kind of talking point there. I and mean, it's uh, there's all sorts of paintings and statues and buildings and, of course, children's books as well, you know, and, and Roald Dahl. Mr. Yeah. Anti-Semitic Roald Dahl, what do you do with those fantastic stories? Very, very difficult, isn't it? I mean, on a completely different kind of slant, really, if that's not a terrible <laughs> word to use in relation to this uh, <laughs> new story. Um, <laughs> I uh, studied my master's in in uh, performance studies, which included the history of the church organ. I mean, that was one of the big modules I had to do. And, and as part of that, I learned the fact that actually there are very, very few organs in Britain from pre kind of oh, 1700s or something like that or 1600s because they were all torn down by the... Um, the Puritans, you know, around the time ah. of the Civil War and, and, and also the Victorians, you know, they they were not very into that stuff and they ripped all this stuff down and lots of decorations and things like that were gone from churches and they're all kind of whitewashed over. Whereas over in Germany, you know, you find all these amazing historic musical instruments from, you know, hundreds of years ago. I mean, the only ones that are not there anymore are the ones that got kind of blown up in, in the Second World War. But we've got a huge lack. The only ones really, the only really historic instruments in this country are the ones that got transported out of the big churches and put in little tiny village churches in the middle of nowhere and therefore survive. So, yeah, this this tendency to want to kind of erase things is a bit of a problem isn't it but then on the other hand we sit here happily not being yes. you know jews or black people or anybody yes. who's who's kind of past ancestors have or you know current uh, family members are on the on the sharp end of some of this stuff so it's kind of tricky yeah it is really tricky i do quite like the idea of what you know without getting too sort of up my own proverbial um <laughs> what art can do to sort of transform your environment or an object, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's interest. It interests me what how people react to statues, and it's sad to think that maybe some of that activism around sort of site specific context is is happening less, um, as is suggested in that that first article. But yeah, I think it's quite exciting when people react to the space and transform it, and people see it afresh I think art can do that in a really powerful way so yeah I suppose whether you agree with it or not someone's had a creative idea there haven't they so yes. it's kind of interesting very interesting over to you okay so we'll sort of stick sort of in the art world now I'm a really big fan of desert island discs I've probably said that countless times on this podcast and in the summer months they take a break and they dip into the archives and pull out some past episodes and this is where as I said at the start this might feel a little bit dated only a little bit um, so 
Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's uh, latest blockbuster, has um, just come out. It came out in July, I believe, when it premiered on the same day as Barbie. <laughs> I think Barbenheimer was a yeah, thing, going a to thing, see yeah. the double bill. Yeah. But I'm a really big fan of Christopher Nolan. And I think because of the success, um, general, sort of generally acknowledged success of Oppenheimer, they've, they've re-aired Christopher Nolan's 2018 uh, Desert Island Discs episode um, where he's interviewed by Kirsty Young. For those of you who don't know, Christopher Nolan is best known for reviving the Batman film franchise and for directing blockbusters such as Inception, Dunkirk and my personal favourite, Interstellar. He's from the UK, he's British. He studied uh, English at University College London's Bloomsbury Theatre. And I was particularly taken by this episode because of the way he was describing his creative process and the techniques that he uses um, to balance sort of what I think has become a well-known aspect of his practice, this kind of rigour of preparation. He's also known to come in under budget. He tends to work with the same people because he's got such good and efficient working relationships with them. But how that balances with sort of experimentation and creativity. And it really spoke to me. And I, I have spoken about creativity in the past on this podcast and, you know, how difficult it can be to balance the generative aspect of being creative with the more sort of critical and analytical aspects of it. And um, I just think this clip spoke to me because it seemed to strike a balance between the two. It starts off in a slightly different place, but it sort of gets to that idea of his creative process a little bit into this short clip. So here goes. Christopher Nolan, you have an industry reputation for being fantastically prepared by the time you start to shoot. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I don't know if this is true, but coming in under budget. Do you sometimes come in under budget? Uh, usually, actually, Emma and, and myself, we sort of pride ourselves on being as efficient as we can. If I am on budget and on schedule, nobody has any reason to scrutinise what it is I'm doing. And I don't want to give them a reason to. And that's worked very well for me in terms of my creative freedom. Are the very, very, very high up executives, the people who run the studios, allowed on to set to come and poke oh, their course. nose about? They yeah, are. absolutely. And I try to be as communicative with them as possible because, you know, they're just human beings. And if you try to exclude them or if you try to obfuscate what you're doing or disguise it in some way, you're going to get a paranoid response, you're going to get an, an aggressive response. So you don't for a minute subscribe to the notion that creativity brings with it a degree of chaos? I think that's down to the individual creator. It's down to what your process is. Mine is not about chaos, it never has been. It's about having a strong narrative and trying to, with my crew members, trying to create a framework on set where we can explore things. So, for example, I have a reputation for being very lucky with the weather, and it's completely untrue. I'm very unlucky with the weather, but I made a decision early on that whatever the weather is, I will shoot until it's not safe. We just shoot if it's pouring with rain or if the sun's come out or whatever, and beautiful things can come from that. I am prepared, but I'm mentally prepared. I don't do shot lists. I don't generally do storyboards, but I turn up every day with you know nothing in hand other than the script. And I want to be able to put the actors into the situation, see how they're going to perform it, and then film it based on that. Tell me about this one-page synopsis, then. It's true, is it? You, you... Yes. I. Uh, it's not even so much a page. It's, it's usually a long paragraph. When you start on a script, you generally have a very clear idea of 
what your final destination is, but not how you're going to get there, if you like. And it's very, very easy to get lost. And so what I do is at some point when I feel I've got a good handle on it, I just write out, okay, what is the film? What's it meant to be? And at some point, I'll just pull it out and have a look at it. I'll do it again when we're editing as well. I'll just pull it out and say, okay, have we communicated these ideas? Do we have the film that I thought I was making a year ago? I have long suspected, and I don't think I'll ever get to investigate it because I'm not brave enough, but I've long suspected that there's a lot in common between classroom teachers and directors. And I like the way he talks about sort of creativity within a framework, him having sort of a really clear vision for where he wants his film to go, but that not being sort of a restrictive thing. It's sort of like a touchstone that you come back to a little bit like your learning intentions in a lesson. So you've got that sort of ability to have the creative freedom, the space to let the actors bring to it what they can. So replace actors with the kids, but that you know you know where it's going and that ultimately you'll be able to sort of steer it in that direction if you've done your prep if you've got that sort of clear idea of what it is it also reminded me of research and how we have research questions that we keep coming back to to make sure that we've not gone off on a tangent it just really spoke to me his whole process I I got on board with and I just like his his sense of calm (laughs) yeah I think this is interesting because I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I have always had a bit of an issue with the cult of the generative ideas person and the sort of chaotic creative. I've often felt that those people get given a bit of a free pass sometimes and get excused an awful lot of disorganised, self-indulgent behaviour on the basis that they are this kind of mythical ideas person but then I sometimes wonder is that because I'm just too blinkered and too too focused on where I'm trying to get to perhaps I mean there there are there will be argues for and against different types of process but I, I also quite like what he had to say about being sort of open and transparent with your producers with your funders you know come in see what I'm doing you know it's better to have them on side and seeing what you're doing than sort of as he said to obfuscating creating more questions around it and potentially ruining those relationships so yeah I just think there was a lot of resonance with the world of education and I really like his films so I think he does a good job <laughs> yeah I mean I'm not being not a big film person I'm uh, really terrible uh, and having to confess I haven't actually seen any of those films but I tell you what I did like in what he was saying there as well is that idea that you can boil down what you're doing down to a kind of one pager because I also think I mean I'm giving myself away here aren't I as a kind of deeply intolerant really impatient person but I do sometimes find that it's really important to bake what you're doing down to something concise like that and if you haven't done that if you haven't sort of put in the time to do that thought process and get that baked down to something simple and concise And then you inflict some massive rambly stream of consciousness on other people. I always feel you're being a little bit disrespectful. If you think about meetings, you know, those are the kind of (laughs) classic forum for those things to happen. But they're, they're people's time, you know. People have turned up and they're giving up loads of time for that. I've seen suggestions that you should have meeting budgets, you know, as a team every year. X number of person hours you're allowed every year to spend on meetings. And if you were doing that, I think I think people would be less tolerant of people that haven't done that, that kind of boiling down process. I think you're really on to something there. And I think it speaks of, of a sort of safe 
pair of hands as well if someone has got that clear vision of whether it's where the meeting is going or where this massive budget you know I think it's like a hundred million dollar budget he had for um, Oppenheimer so you know people time is money it's respectful and hopefully you're going to get a really decent product at the end of it yeah I think this is where I out myself as someone who really doesn't have a lot of time for people who want to narrate the sort of unordered contents of their brain in front of a large audience (laughs) I think, you know, some stuff is really, really hard to kind of boil down into something concise and simple. And in that case, you know, find a trusted friend or colleague who's willing to put up with you and kind of do that process with them. But don't do it in front of a whole team of people. No, I think you and Christopher Nolan could share a pint or two (laughs) and be quite happy. (laughs) Well, there we go. I've just outed myself as a thoroughly intolerant, massively impatient person. Again, (laughs) I always do that in these episodes. As if our listeners didn't know that already. (laughs) Oh, well, there we go. And so here comes another one from me, (laughs) in which I similarly (laughs) put out the fact that I'm probably not somebody you want to be friends with. Here we go. (laughs) This is is, um, an article from uh, somebody's blog, I think, uh, or, or sort of slightly bloggy site called AboveTheLaw.com. It's from 2014. Um, the uh, headline is a little bit difficult to understand when you first hear it, so I will also read the kind of bit underneath it. It says, please consider the environment before printing email signatures are hurting the environment. <laughs> uh, it says, do you have unnecessary verbiage in your email signature file? If so, please do something about it. <laughs> Here we go. So again, I'm just going to read a little bit of this and then I'm going to kind of detour off to some other sources as well. So Jeff Bennion says in 2014, sometime around five years ago, I noticed people starting putting this at the end of their emails. Please consider the environment before printing this email. Whoever the first person who did this was clearly lived in a different world than me, a world where lawyers would get emails on their computers and would just keep printing them out and putting them into binders to read later. In that world, I could see why someone would want to speak up. On planet Earth, however, that is not the case. He then goes on to do a bit of maths and a bit of sort of working out. He says, most people don't realise this. The internet accounts for a good deal of the pollution in the world. In a 2011 article, which is likely a clear underestimation of 2014 numbers, cleantechnica.com reported that at that time, there were about 500,000 data centres in the world and each used 10 megawatts of energy a month. That's the same amount a small town uses for each data centre. In 2012, Mashable reported that there are approximately 140 billion emails sent a day of that number about 90 billion are business emails and of course this is 2014 this is before we had all this kind of bitcoin stuff all this decentralized crypto this that and the other which also uses an absolutely ridiculous amount of, of power um, and, and it causes an enormous amount of pollution so he does a bit of maths kind of tries to work out what what sort of size a pointless email signature would be in terms of amounts of data, then scales it up to that 90 billion business emails and works out basically that the amount of space that that is taking up in people's data centers, the amount of energy that's taking to transmit around the place is absolutely enormous. And so he makes the point that perhaps since very few people print their emails, uh, you shouldn't bother sticking that on your email signature. Now, I do actually think those email signatures have sort of died a little bit of a death. However, they have been replaced 
Yep. Particularly uh, in some of the circles in which we um, we tend to move, with some enormous signature blocks, with multiple job titles, vast numbers of qualifications, postal addresses, all sorts of things. This led me off down a little rabbit hole of a little thread on Reddit as well, which unfortunately I can't read any of it because uh, there Too there many were expletives. yeah there were no bits without sweary bits in them. But about whether you should uh, pepper your email signature with all your post nominals. Oh. Which, of course, is an interesting one for us because we are in academia, which is, one, you know, one of the few places where it is sort of vaguely socially acceptable to do that. And I mean, there were some people that were saying, you know, you've worked for your qualification, slap it all over the place. There were some people that were saying, well, actually, this was an interesting one. As a woman, you know, or, or, or as a younger member of a team, I don't get taken seriously. People think I'm, you know, a real junior and then I my PhD on the end of my email signature and they all suddenly become deferential so that was interesting mm -hmm. some people say that you know it's great because uh, if, if somebody does that then you can be on a warning that they're <laughs> not somebody you want to spend too much time with uh, anyway what do you think <laughs> oh gosh I knew you'd do this I, oh, I how did you know I the one that makes me feel a little bit queasy but I totally understand why people do it is when people put their most recently published works <laughs> in their email signature and yeah. links to them like I, I I love some of the people who I work with who do that I have um, mixed feelings about it I just oh, I don't know the I mean first time I saw it I made you make a pact with me that you'd shoot me if I ever did it yeah um, but I don't know I I'm 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 not going to do it I, I'm I'm less militant about that. But yeah, I know what you mean. It is it's tricky. I mean, I'm a little bit hypocritical because I have added a link to the podcast. <laughs> well, well my... that's fine. <laughs> Goodness me. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but I don't know. I, uh, that, that, though, has astonished me because I would never have thought that it equates to energy consumption. You know, I... Am I understanding that? Yeah. I well, I mean, yes, there's energy consumption to kind of transmit the emails. There's also, of course, all the hard drives in all the data centres in all the world that's storing people's emails, which are bigger than they need to be. Well, because, yeah, the thing that it got me thinking about, and this is a very personal issue that you have unfortunately had to experience my pain in. I think my Mac, um, which is starting to show its age a little bit now, was downloading the entire contents of all of those emails. And, of course... If you've got an image in an email signature, which many of them do tend to, some of those files are quite large. So you've got all of this sort of detritus that comes with the email that clogged up my laptop. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, the, the, I'm not sure the maths is in, entirely there on the on the blog there. And of course, it is nearly 10 years old. So there's no point kind of reading that maths out. But it was an enormous number. And it, as he says, even if he's if he's overestimated it by a factor of 10, it's, it's still a really enormous number. So yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure what I think about these massive email signatures. I'm not quite sure what purpose they serve or who one is trying to impress. And also the, uh, the proliferation of post nominals that I find around the place. But then we're supposed to do that as university people, aren't we? I mean, I think probably the worst one I've ever seen is, is the use of QTS as a post-nominal, which is just made up. I mean, you can't do that. No, I, QTS being qualified teacher <laughs> yes, status. It's not a post-nominal, folks. No, it, it isn't. Yeah, I think some of them are a little bit questionable. Um, but when you make that point about female academics, I think there there is definitely a point there. I just... To be honest, on a basic level, the amount of people who I communicate with via email who 
ask me all the time where my office is and it's in my flipping email signature there we go. point made <laughs> so, just just bin it you know yeah. and then it kind of led me on to an interesting discussion then that you know what do we do what are we doing if we don't use things like that like you know as as we know i have recently got my doctorate i'm not massively comfortable with flashing it around the place to be perfectly honest um and yet there are female academics who kind of say no you need to, we do need to do it because you know if comfortably off white male middle class academics don't use stuff like that then they're made to look bad if they do use it but they need to use it because otherwise people make assumptions that they're a secretary or something like that it's really mm. a bit of a minefield isn't it yeah it is you you look at it in different directions and you could have all kinds of deep conversations that we unfortunately don't have time for in this yeah. episode but yeah i i don't really mind the what did you call them post-nominals post-nominals yeah. <laughs> i'm not so i'm not so um prickly about those but as i said not sure about the recently published works i don't know mm, i don't know it's, it's a it's difficult isn't it because you do want people to read stuff yeah um, yeah but yeah but there we go maybe you are as he puts it in in his in his blog the equivalent of the environmental equivalent of clubbing several baby seals a month oh. by doing that <laughs> to go there <laughs> crikey well there we go you got a shock to to bring about change haven't you? right okay well i'm gonna look very closely at my uh, at that, email yeah. signature otherwise i shall be raising one end of a baby seal three and a half degrees <laughs> <laughs> to raise awareness of pointless email signatures and the gratuitous use of post nominals Signed, Dr. Thomas Breeze, BMAS, MA, PhD, <laughs> PGCE, FHEA. <laughs> oh, oh, we do have fun in these episodes. All right. <laughs> there you go. I can't really compete with that one now. Not that it's a competition, but I'm, is this the last one? This is it's your last one. It's my last I've one. I've got one more. Oh, there we go. That's all right then. So if, if this bombs, then uh, you'll, you'll pull us back from the brink. Okay, so um, I think loosely when we decided the format for the half-term special, it was a blog, a tweet and a story. It was, yeah, and then we just went rogue. (laughs) So this is a tweet, although I don't know what you call this now that Twitter is now called X. Is it an X? What is it? I don't know. I I need to change the the end credits, don't I? We're on X at TalkTeachingPod. I'm not going to bother. No, I don't like it. Um, Okay, so Michael Rosen is a British writer, academic, journalist, um, and he sort of generally specialises in children's literature. I mean, I think he's a professor of children's literature at Goldsmiths. But he was also former British children's laureate. He has written a poem, and I'm just going to read it, and um, then we'll have a chat about it. I'll also talk to you about some of the tweets that came. English lesson now. goodness me yeah some interesting uh, tweets came off the back of this so here goes it's called guide to education you get education in schools to find out how much education you get the government gives you tests before you do the tests the government likes it if you're put on different tables that show how well or badly you are going to do in the tests the tests test whether they have put you on the right table The tests test whether you know what you're supposed to know. But don't try to get to know any old stuff like what is earwax or how to make soup. 
The way to know things you're supposed to know is to do pretend tests. When you do the pretend tests, you learn how to think in the way that tests want you to think. The more practice you do, the more likely it is that you won't make the mistake of thinking in any other way than in the special test way of thinking. Here's an example. The apples are growing on the tree. What is growing on the tree? If you say leaves, you are wrong. It's no use you thinking that when apples are on a tree, there are usually leaves on, their on the tree too. There is only one answer, and that is apples. All other answers are wrong. If you're the kind of person that thinks leaves is a good answer, doing lots and lots and lots of practice tests will get you to stop thinking that leaves is a good answer. Doing many, many practice tests will also make it very likely that there won't be time for you to go out and have a look at an apple tree to see what else grows on apple trees, like ants or mistletoe. Education is getting much better these days because there is much more testing. Remember, it's apples, not leaves. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I thought it was fun. And then um, Jane Turnbull uh, responded to this on, on X. She says, I was a maths teacher and in tests, marks were given for the correct answer, but also for correct working out. When a child got the right answer, but no marks for working out, I would ask them to explain their method. I got some amazing answers. Lateral thinking should be encouraged. Then Michael's Rosen responded, that's just the sort of weak socialist crap that has ruined our society. You were interested in the working out. Sounds like you were interested in the students' minds. That's where you went wrong and society with it. This is where we need Dr. Kev talking about the difference between education and schooling. Isn't yeah, it? it did get me thinking yes. about this. And then Jane Clout said, being taught about parallel lines aged eight, we were asked for examples. Mine was the sides of a ruler. That was the wrong answer. I should have said railway tracks and the teacher drew them on the board to show me. And then Michael Rosen responded, there is only one answer. And then perhaps the most bleak, Simon Hartley says, as a, I think... He says, he says, as a FT primary teacher, I think it might be full fed time. Oh, full time. Oh, full time. I, was, I thought it might be like Federation Trust, but no, Possibly. it must be full time. As a FT primary teacher, three straws broke the camel's back. One, catching myself teaching my year two class about fronted adverbials. Oh, yes. Number two, realizing I had sucked all the enjoyment out of their learning so they would get good SAT scores. Number three, cancelling an afternoon of art for more literacy. <laughs> this goes back to your first article, doesn't it? As it well? does. It does. I nearly put them together, but um, I think uh, I think it was fine as it is. But yeah, I just I, I like I like his playfulness in that um, in that little poem. Yeah, I also hugely enjoy the phantom poetry lever in our place, who I think was Dr. Judith Neen, it who was. left three brilliant experimental poems by Matthew Welton called "Green Gauge," "Blue Scale," and "Blacklist," which take the form of a kind of spoof. A criteria table from an exam syllabus about the kind of quality of your blue, green or black. If you would like to look those up, they are fantastic. They are. It was like a rubric, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Negligent use of black and things like that. You know, and so. she was so good. She'd put them in the photocopying room. So, you know, you have the best chance of, of spotting it when you were sort of waiting for your photocopying to be done. It was great. Yes, there's something to try. English teachers become a phantom photocopy room poetry lever mm. that'd be fun okay i enjoyed that Good. very much and i am going to finish off with a discussion which includes a famous actor 
now a late famous actor oh. and a question about voices uh, i've got two articles i'm going to i'm going to do part of the first one then i'm going to ask you a question and i'm going to move on so prepare yourself okay. this is from quentin letts's political sketch again in the times i seem to have lent quite heavily on the output of the times today and he was reporting on a session of prime minister's questions pmqs uh, back in june 2023 in which he says, brief tribute was paid at the start of PMQs to Glenda Jackson, the Oscar-winning actress and sometime Labour MP who died last week. We will never see talent like hers again, said Sir Keir Starmer in his prosaic way. We may certainly never again hear such talent, for it was Jackson's voice that distinguished her most as a parliamentary performer. A theatrical, tobacco-y instrument, it rasped and carried, hitting its consonants crisply and sometimes rolling the R's, particularly if she was ascribing some wickedness to Thatcherism. Jackson only made it to parliamentary under-secretary as minister, serving at the Department for Transport in the first two years of Tony Blair's government, but the voice was later heard from the back benches. Not that she overdid it. She was no rent-a-quote. She had a nicely feline air of detachment and could give the impression she thought many of her colleagues to be ripe idiots. Before I read the rest of this article, let's have a listen to a bit of Glenda Jackson. Stick your headphones on, Amethea. Yeah. You will want to hear this. This is a little extract of Glenda Jackson in the House of Commons uh, eviscerating Ian Duncan Smith when he was in charge of the Department for Work and Pensions. Glenda Jackson. Mr Deputy Speaker, I think the Honourable Gentleman will in the future regret tra- taking such pride in his Secretary of State. We have all become used to the Secretary of State avoiding um, answering any kind of direct question or actively engaging in any of the serious issues which have to do with the destruction of the welfare state and the total and utter incompetence of his department by opting for a self-serving, sanctimonious sermon as opposed to any direct speech. Marvellous. Jackson was replaced at transport by Keith Hill, Chucker Amuna's predecessor as Labour MP for Stretton. He had a deliciously fruity basso, deep as Ronnie Corbett's. How many of today's MPs have memorable voices? The greatest, sadly muted in recent months, is Sir Geoffrey Cox, human equivalent of the concert tuba. Giles Watling is quite euphonious, as you might expect of a former thesp who once starred in the drag queen musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Watling is seldom seen without his Garrick tie. Emily Thornbury has a ginny, breathy contralto that could make the shipping forecast sound like an erotic podcast. (laughs) Stephen Kinnock's deep and lilting is also a lovely voice. From the cradle, he must have listened to his father, the best part conference speaker I heard. That will be Neil Kinnock, former leader of the Labour Party. There is an attractive brandished resonance to Stephen Flynn, the Scott Nats leader in the Commons, and, and he trills his R's. Michael Gove has a sonorous larynx too, particularly in morning radio interviews after one of his splashier evenings. The levelling up secretary smokes, likes clubland savouries and has been known to accept the occasional thimble of claret. A parliamentary orator must perhaps be prepared to sacrifice lungs and liver to the cause. After the tributes to Glenda, it was largely downhill at PMQs. Who are your favourite voices, Emma? That's my question. Oh, gosh, I knew that was coming. (laughs) Well, I know what I don't like, is I don't like sort of excessive mouth noise. Ah, yes. I I, I was wincing a little bit at the thought of of Michael Gove, because I feel like he's (laughs) got some excessive mouth noise. Um, I quite like... uh, Who is it on... Give me a clue. 
the morning BBC Radio 4. I always forget the name. I know that PM is PM. What's the morning one? Today. Today. I really like, is it Nick Robinson? Nick Robinson, oh. yeah, who, whose voice was very croaky after he had a he had a cancer, he? did, didn't he, he yeah. did. But I, he's got, I, I quite like the yeah. sort of raspiness to okay. it. I quite like that. Um, I like John Humphreys. Um, I very much like Kirsty Young's. I think Kirsty yes. Young's is... Yeah. Oh, I love the accent. It's just the the depth. I really like it. Um, my favourite, though, radio actor voice, and possibly one of my favourite male white British actors of all time is Bill Nye. I think Bill Nye's voice is oh beautiful. Very nice. Well, I was thinking about this, and I mean, all the all the names I was coming up with, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm a sucker for lots of the kind of Radio 4 voices, you know, your Zeb Sones and your Brian Perkins, Peter Donaldson, all those kind of continuity announcer types, Patrick Stewart, of, oh, course. Yeah, of course, wonderful voice. And that made me think, and then that led me to another article um, by Janan Ganesh in the Financial Times, who says, we need to talk about voice privilege. A good speaking voice is as much an asset in work and life as physical beauty. Now, he starts off by suggesting that one of the main reasons for Boris Johnson's popularity is his voice, not his accent, he says, not his choice of words or his arrangement of them, his eloquence. He means his voice, deep and textured, raspy without crossing into sibilance. I can see or hear why people want to be around it. And then he he kind of moves along this argument. He says, Johnson isn't even the foremost case of voice privilege. Stephen Fry, a trader in quotations and allusions, not thoughts, but I could listen to him all day. Barack Obama, wouldn't those messianic banalities, that coffee mug wisdom be recognised as such if he spoke with a squeak? Keir Starmer has slayed the hard left and turned a 20-point poll deficit into a 20-point lead for the Labour Party, and still a perception of weakness clings to him. It is that sound of strangulation he can't help making. And none of this reckons with the question of gender. How much of the historic male advantage in the workplace comes down to the vocal factor? Shrill is such a wounding word to use against someone because it conflates a trebly voice with extremism of thought and brittleness of character. Mm. He says, I write as a citizen of the most voice-privileged nation. A lot of clout, intellectual, even sexual, is said to accrue to the British accent. What people like, if they like it at all, is the British voice. From such mechanics, a veneer of intelligence and sophistication is conjured. Thus did we get the world to pay for Richard Curtis films. A brilliant ruse, the voice, but no less cruel for that. Wow. (laughs) So, do we just all like those deep, profound-sounding, Britishly-accented voices? Oh, I don't know. I can't answer that, but... I do like the argument that he's making. I think I think he's onto something there. Yeah, and actually there is, I'm, I'm going to bring in the gratuitous teaching angle here. Yeah. You are slightly stuck if you're a teacher and you have a voice that gets on the kids' nerves. <laughs> yes, yes. And on a sort of physiological level, you really do need to look after it. You, it is so, it's such an important part of what you do it's your major instrument and I think we do very little to teach new teachers to protect it. Yeah one of the things I learned really early on is that if I had a cold I needed to give myself a bit of a break when it came to behaviour management weirdly enough because 
I used to find the kids used to be much, much harder to manage when I had a cold. And I eventually, I think I realised that it's because, you know, without being too horrible about it, so, you know, you've already told me you don't like the old mouth noises. Well, let's not try to think too much about the fact that all your kind of hollow resonant bits in your skull kind of fill up with horrible gunk when you've got a cold and you yeah. lose all the high end of your voice and you sound much more dull and much mm. more kind of miserable and it's much harder to grab the kids. And I used to find that it was much, much harder to get through a lesson, not just because I was feeling rotten, but because the kids used to really play up for me. And in the end, I just thought, well, give myself a free pass. Can't help it. My voice has gone really dull. It's making me wonder, like, how many studies there have been into sort of teacher identity, persona and voice as a sort of a key sort of dimension of that. I wonder how many teachers as part of sort of donning the teacher identity, change their voice. We hear about it, you hear about a lot of female politicians changing their voice to play that role. I wonder how many teachers do the same. Yeah, because Margaret Thatcher famously yeah. did that, didn't she? Yeah. she? She had her voice kind of lowered by elocution lessons. And also very interesting that, you know, they mentioned Keir Starmer there. He does always sound sort of slightly annoyed, as did Jeremy Corbyn, actually. And they have both been compared to their disadvantage with supply teachers. Oh. oh, they sound like a peevish supply teacher. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, I I don't really like the mudslinging that goes on when, you know, women are perceived to be shrill or shouty or bossy because they are raising their voice or because they're using their voice that's sort of the higher pitch mm. to their voice. I don't really like the fact that the idea that you'd have to lower your voice to be taken seriously yeah and it does seem to be and there was another interesting point in the article which i didn't include there which is that david beckham is perceived as very very masculine until he opens his mouth yeah i do you know i was thinking about him when when it said about would we take obama as seriously if he he was squeaking yeah because the voice with obama does sort of match for me the the aesthetic yes um there is a certain expectation, isn't there, that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a comedy factor, unfortunately, when, when David Beckham opens his yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah. And, and for many years, Classic FM was just hilarious because every single one of their presenters seemed to be picked purely for their very fruity voice. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Because it was kind of connected with this sort of very sophisticated lover of classical music or the same 32 bars of classical music played over and over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. But he's definitely on. The, the whole privilege thing and the british baddie the british baddie in the films. oh yeah Always. absolutely spot on <laughs> i mean alan rickman i thought you were going to mention alan rickman oh, because yes, you said yes. the late because his voice is so distinctive yes. you know everybody does the classic alan <laughs> rickman <laughs> harry potter exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everybody out there's thinking now about their favorite actor in there <laughs> yes. yeah good there nice. we go voices Voices. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if anyone out there is thinking now, have I got a teacher voice? Yes. Actually, I have been told off many a time by family members for using my teacher voice <laughs> in, you know, out of the, te- out, out of the classroom context, particularly my sister. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of acutely aware that yeah. I have tendency to do that. <laughs> on teacher voice, you need a slap from your nearest and dearest, don't you, really? Yeah. There we go. We've done it. We've done it. Another half-term special. 
hope there was something of vague interest in there. And if you're uh, on half term or coming to the end of half term, practice your teacher voice over Absolutely the weekend. Absolutely do. And um, we'll be back with you same time in two weeks time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. We hope there was something interesting in the last hour to make your half-term fun. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on whatever Elon Musk's social media network is called by the time this comes out at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and be rude about our speaking voices. We're off to prune the post nominals from our email signatures to save the baby seals. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.